Hey, hello, and welcome to Veterans for Responsible Leadership's podcast in Accountable America. Thanks for joining us. I'm your co-host and producer, Jason Belcher. I'm an Iraq veteran and former Air Force officer. We're real excited to have with us today the president and founder of VFRL, Dr. Dan Barkoff, who's a former Navy SEAL, current emergency room physician. And our guest today is Mr. Steve Kornacki, who is the M- embassy, NS, excuse me, the uh, political correspondent for MSNBC and a best-selling author. We're glad to have him with us here today. So welcome. Thanks for having me, although uh, full disclosure, I'm not sure it was best-selling. Oh, okay. It did sell, it did sell a couple <laughs> copies, but I don't know if I can claim um, that distinction. Awesome. Steve, thanks for making some time for us, man. You know, my mom still calls you Steve, little Stevie Kornacki. Yeah, my whole family does, too. So. Uh, <laughs> So for those, uh, you know, this might not be uh, um, a a well-known fact, but I've known Steve since I was probably five years old. Uh, We moved to, we moved, I moved from Maine to a town uh, in Massachusetts called Groton, Massachusetts. And um, I'm not sure how our family started hanging out, really. I don't know the origin story, but I, you know, I I remember, uh, I remember hanging out with you guys from the very beginning. Yeah, I you know I think it's just one of those same age small town. Every parent knows each other, and you know, I remember uh, youth uh, youth soccer, youth baseball, and uh, summers at the the town pool at uh, I think that's right. School. Yeah, yeah. The um, you know it was interesting. This is a, a bit of an aside, but maybe you could tell our listeners. So Steve lived in this house, this very old house, right? Like one of one of the you know three or four houses in in town that had survived like King Philip's War, yep. but you know basically from it must have been what like sixteen fifty or something. This house was built. It, yeah, it was. I think they said it was like the second oldest uh, house in town. It had survived when the whole town got burned down, basically sometime in the seventeenth century, and uh, it had this like root cellar. There was a door in the floor. Yep. These you know wood floors, and you know we put our kitchen table over it. But if you move the kitchen table, you just literally would open it up, and there was this. I mean, there was nothing down there, but I'm sure like mice and rats and stuff, but, <laughs> uh, no electricity or anything, uh, and just dirt, dirt walls and everything. But you could, um, my dad, you know, would always tell us if there was a nuclear war, that's where he would hide. <laughs> <laughs> but wasn't that, and, and that was like a 17th century panic room, right? Or was it was it more for actual storage of foodstuffs? Yeah, it must have been storage. I don't even know the full story behind it because um, it was useless to us. Like I said, it was like we were kind of right. terrified to open it because we just figured the mice would come running upstairs or something. And it was like I was allergic to cats, but my mom had like four of them be- just because of the mice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so so we, you know, we kind of grew up and uh, had a shared love for basketball um, I remember playing, you know, basketball and youth, youth basketball, bitty ball, all that kind of stuff. And then um, as we got more towards high school, um, you know, we uh, um, you were the you were the manager of the high school basketball team. Correct. Yeah. And the uh, the very primitive at the time, this the saber metrics of uh, uh, Central Mass Division three basketball. I did the stats put an Excel spreadsheet together and used to give the coach a report after every game. But is this where you're kind of, I mean, was this formative at all? You know, you'd always been interested in politics. I remember you kind of, you know, getting into the middle school election, like the state, this was Massachusetts 92, I think. So, and it was, you know, Bill Weld, who, you know, still, still is around in some political circles. And, 
uh, versus this guy, John Silber. And, and we'll get to that in a second, but you always kind of had a, um, you know, a sports interest and, you know, you were always uh, able to, you know, recite Wade Boggs' batting average and things of that nature. So, um, you know, have you always kind of had, uh, you know, uh, not just an affinity, but like a, an interest in kind of stats and, and numbers? Yeah, definitely. Like I, I, I've always been able to, I, I understand things better when you can put a number on them. And when you can compare one thing to the other with a number, um, it just helps me kind of make sense of the world, make sense of whatever it, you know the subject is I'm trying to understand. But yeah, I can remember, you know, when I was a kid. I mean, this this dates everything. You know, I used to wait for the newspaper to be delivered, yep. but, you know, run outside, get the Boston Globe in the morning. In the summer, page four was the baseball box scores yeah. every day, and just you know, pour over those, you know, Celtics box scores, that kind of thing. And I remember getting interested in, in, in politics. Yeah, like you're saying, it was that Wells Silver race. I think it was like a class project. Uh, yes. Kind of how that started. And I got assigned to play. You know, we played different candidates. Uh, <laughs> I got assigned to play John Silver. And which is the weirdest election. When you look back now, I had no concept of this as a kid. It's the weirdest election in Massachusetts history where the Democrat, John Silver, was definitely more conservative than the Republican, Bill Weld. And, you know, the most when you look back at it, the most liberal towns in Massachusetts, which are some of the most liberal towns in America, places like Cambridge, Mass, Brookline, Mass, Amherst, Mass, Provincetown, um, all voted for the Republican. <laughs> and so really? Voted, yeah. You know, Bill Weld is definitely the last Republican in Massachusetts to carry places like that. Now they <laughs> 92 to 8, you know, Democratic. But it was a real scrambled. I didn't fully. I mean, Silver was a character. Yeah. Um, Weld in his own way was too, but I didn't fully appreciate how, how unusual that election was till years later. I don't, you know, I, it's funny. I can't, I mean, I don't even know if I knew anything at the time, but like, I couldn't tell you one policy policy position, but I remember silver was this sort of firecracker, um, you know, almost, a. um, it's probably a stretch to call him like a Huey Long, but like of that of that mold, but like a person who would give kind of fiery speeches and and uh, you know he had been a university he was BU president right that's what he kind of ran yeah he was a super super intellectual guy an expert on like Kant you know philosophy um, incredibly well read incredibly learned incredible vocabulary but I think he also had that like distaste for that class the academic class the elite yeah. class and so he ran as a populist and he i think he you know that was those were the themes of the campaign it was delivered though in this very learned way which again it's just i'm trying to i struggle to find the parallel for maybe there's a little bit there you know maybe with new gingrich um you know again as somebody who was an academic turned politician but Silver was at another level i think just in terms of the the sort of you know i mean he truly was an accomplished at academic university of texas boston university president um and um you know served in all these national commissions and everything but yeah he had like deep inside of him there were these real populist sort of um you know nerve centers so you kind of dip your intellectual beak so to speak in in this state gubernatorial race and then along comes uh william jefferson clinton and how did that how did that capture your interest weirdly there was a local connection too because 92 was you know was clinton's year when clinton got elected over uh, bush senior but in the primary uh clinton's top rival ended up being from lowell mass which is you know 10 minutes 10 miles from groton where we grew up 
So Paul Songus was a former senator from Massachusetts, ran in the Democratic primaries, won the New Hampshire primary. Um, there was a real brief moment there when it actually, you know, Clinton had the, the Jennifer Flowers scandal. There was the Vietnam draft. Like Clinton looked like, you know, a bunch of times in that campaign, like he was on the verge of, of, of getting blown out of it. And, and Songus was actually going to win for, you know, a couple of weeks there, at least that's how it felt. So I remember, you know, you get the Lowell Sun delivered in the afternoon, the local newspaper, yeah. and, and there was the guy who was like basically our local guy, um, you know, who looked like he could be president for a very short period. So that was actually, I got interested in that race really because of the Songus angle. Obviously, it didn't work for him. Clinton became the nominee. Um, and I, I, I remember that, you know, 92 is the, is the first presidential campaign I really have vivid memories of. And it, I think it's true of anything in life, whatever you're you know, area of interest is when you first get interested in it, those are the memories that stick with you the most. Those are the foundational lessons you learn. And so a lot of the sort of foundational lessons I, I, I sort of learned about politics are things that stuck with me from watching that, that 92 campaign unfold. And I mean, I can just remember how, how the, the biggest lesson I took from it was how, um, how conventional wisdom can change real quickly because Bill, you know, it was assumed at the start of 92 that Bush senior was getting reelected. They had just had the Gulf War the year yeah, before. Yeah, this was, that, I mean, you know, he was, he had a 90% approval yeah, rating, right? Unbe- unbeatable. And all the big name Democrats didn't run. And then here's Bill Clinton, and he's got a, every scandal imaginable. And the Democrats had lost three straight presidential elections and landslides. So obviously Clinton's not going to be the one to break that curse and blah, blah, blah. And then, the, you know, by Labor Day, everybody's written off Bush and Clinton's on his way to victory. And, and it, oh, I just remember watching it all change in the span of about six weeks. And, and um, that was, you know, it, it, that made an impression on me. So let's talk about Clinton for a second. So, you know, Clinton gets in office and, you know, he, he's kind of this new, uh, what do you call it? Like a new wave Democrat? Is that was, was that a new Democrat? Yeah. The Democrat. New Democrat, right. And so he was sort of, you know, a little more conservative in some ways than, um, you know, the, the Mondales of the world, right? And, and you know, he he really develops a, um, you know, a plan for, for governing that by today's standards would seem pretty moderate, right? I mean, you know, you have Hillary kind of trying to work on, um, you know, healthcare and, you know, that didn't really get off the ground very much. But there's this, you know, Perhaps I, I, you know, I've got a, a recency bias, but it seemed that there was this antipathy towards him on the behalf of, uh, you know, many in the Republican Party, many on the conservative side that um, that felt uncommon, right? It, would you, Would you talk a little bit about that? Like, what what was different about Clinton, and why did people hate his guts so much? Yeah, I think there were a couple of a couple of things that were going on. I mean, number one is he ran as a as a moderate democrat in 92 and that was the, the whole backdrop was those three straight landslide losses that Demo- i mean democrats weren't just losing the presidency they were getting blown out Mondale lost 49 of 50 states dukakis lost 40 carter and his re-election campaign lost 44 you go back a little further george mcgovern lost 49 and 72 you had a generation there where with the exception of jimmy carter eking it out in 1976 democrats were just getting blown out in presidential elections. Right. so that yeah. gave rise to this this movement that was primarily from southern democrats but not exclusively but you know the south used to be again this is like for, for people just getting into politics the last few years it's unfathomable 
But the South, when you went back half a century, 75 years ago, the South was uniformly Democratic. And the Republicans really began to make their gains in the South in the 50s, 60s, and they accelerated in the 70s and the 80s. So Clinton, you know, was sort of this, this the concept of Clinton was like, hey, Democrats, we can still win the South, or we can win enough of the South to be competitive in presidential elections. But what we have to do is moderate, especially on cultural issues. Think of like some of these flashpoints in like Dukakis losing in 88. Dukakis is asked in a presidential debate by a moderator, you know, if your wife were raped and murdered, would you favor the death penalty? And not only does he say no, he was against the death penalty, but he gives this just bloodless technocratic answer. You know, he's not like angry at the moderator and standing up. How dare you, you know, invoke my wife like that? Some kind of response like that. And right. he really was caricatured as this sort of like process technocratic ACLU liberal. So Clinton, the Clinton 92 campaign was about changing that image. And he ran as, you know, tough on crime. I'm going to end welfare. I'm going to give the middle class a tax cut. So it was that when he, when he got into office, he faced immediate pressure because Democrats still had massive majorities in the House and the Senate. And they had their own agenda, Democrats in Congress. And it was much more liberal than what Clinton campaigned on. This and is like Tip O'Neill and... By that point, Tom Foley was the speaker. Tom Foley, okay. Uh, George Mitchell from Maine was the majority leader. You know, I think Democrats had 57 Senate seats when Clinton came in. They used to call... At that time, the Democrats had controlled the House. When Clinton took office, it was the 38th straight year that Democrats had controlled the House. It wasn't even close. And so they had, like, for them, this was like, whoa... We finally got a Democratic president who can sign our bills. And so there was a, you know, Clinton, and then Clinton went back on the middle class tax cut pledge. He mm-hmm. went all in on, on national health care, appointed his wife to, as you said, to lead the, um, to lead the task force on it. Um, that ended up being a political train wreck for them. So I, th- I think those first two years, he was vulnerable to charges of not living up to the campaign promise of being, you know, a different kind of Democrat. But I think the other thing, too, is cultural. Um, you know, Clinton broke a, a, a string of, I think it was seven consecutive presidents who had been from the World War II generation and served. And Clinton was the first baby boomer president. And, of course, the, one of the controversies from the campaign, yet had, had the, the culture wars of the late 60s and 70s, Clinton, in a lot of ways, represented one side of them. Vietnam War had come along, and Clinton had artfully found a way to avoid this. The whole, you know, you read this letter he wrote to the, the draft board and everything. I mean, he artfully found a way out of it. And in 1992, that was, uh, I think that carried a lot more political sting than somebody today might, you know, on, 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 on something like that. This was, you know, Clinton saying in 92 during the campaign, you know, did you ever smoke marijuana? And of course, he famously said, I, I tried it once. But I didn't inhale, and this whole image took hold of Clinton. Right. He was a used. The image was used car salesman. His word is no good. He talks out of both sides of his mouth. And Slick Willie was the was the kind yes, of moniker yeah. that his opponents used against him, and he played into that in, in a thousand different ways. Um, and, and you would see it right in those first two years, where you know you asked questions about his character in in polling, and it never really scored that high. And um, so I think that was, there was a cultural kind of, there was a cultural change, a generational change taking place uh, in the country. The generation of, the boomer generation had been divided over Vietnam. Plenty had gone off and served. Plenty who had served resented the heck out of people like Clinton who had not, who had 
not only not serve, but it really, you know, kind of going out of their way not to serve. And, and I think Clinton, and then it's, there's the whole issue of, you know, Hillary Clinton making her a, you know, that was a new role for a first lady, a, a prominent forward facing public policy making role. Um, you know, and, and, and there had been a whole thing in Arkansas where she hadn't taken Bill Clinton's name. She eventually did. She, Hillary Rodham Clinton. Um, but I, I, I just think it touched a lot of these sort of culture war nerves um, at the time. And he read to a lot of people as being on the kind of liberal McGovern Vietnam War protester side. And I think that stirred even a generation later. I think that stirred a lot of the resentment toward him. Okay, so, you know, Clinton's on the scene, right? Clinton's the president. He is, uh, you know, kind of got his own issues in-house, but he's, he's doing some things that were um, new, newer, you know, the role of the first lady, things like that. And along comes this little college professor from Georgia. So tell us, tell us about this. It's a, yeah, this is, the, uh, this is the collision at the heart of, uh, of my book, and it's... Um... Yeah, Clinton comes in in 92, and by 1992, Newt Gingrich, congressman from Georgia, has been there for 14 years. <clears throat> and Gingrich comes to the House in the late 1970s. He's elected in 1978 on his third try. And just as I was saying, they called it the Permanent Democratic Congress. You know, in 1978, it had been almost a generation at that point since Republicans had had a majority in the House. And again, it, it wasn't even close. It wasn't one of these things where, like, they'd go into an election and they'd need to gain 10 seats and they'd only get five. I mean, they were like 60 seats away, 70 seats away. I mean, they were buried. And it got to the point where most Republicans in the House, especially the older generation, they, they didn't know any other way. They couldn't imagine any other way. They accepted this as just, hey, this is the way politics is in this country. The Democrats run the House. We get the ranking member gavels. Maybe we'll get 30% of whatever, you know, whatever the appropriation is. Why was that? Why, why did, what did the Democrats do so well, you know, in the 70s and 80s that they won all these elections? Were they, you know, were they nationally better organized? Was it, what, what did they do? So it's more what, what hadn't happened yet, what Gingrich saw potentially coming. And what hadn't happened yet was that politics hadn't really been nationalized. Or congressional yeah. politics really hadn't been nationalized. So you mentioned the name Tip O'Neill earlier. And Tip O'Neill was the Democratic speaker from 76 to 86. And his famous line was, all politics is local. And that was, you know, Tip O'Neill was born in 1912. He came of age during the Depression. And in Tip O'Neill's world, he's, you know, North Cambridge, Massachusetts. You won elections by, you know, giving out turkeys, you know, on Thanksgiving and bringing home the bacon and getting, you know, all sorts of federal funding. And it didn't matter if you were a Democrat or Republican, if you did those things, you would get reelected. That was sort of his vision of politics. And Democrats were able to succeed. As I say, it was sort of like you had liberals from the North, like Tip O'Neill, that would get in, and you'd have Democrats from the South who, who dominated the region through the 60s into the 70s, but they were very conservative, but they still called themselves Democrats. Right. So you had this situation where, like, starting with, like, Nixon in 72 or even in 68, but Nixon in 72 is a great example because it's Nixon versus George McGovern. And George McGovern is as liberal a candidate as the Democrats have ever nominated. And Nixon is winning southern states 70 to 30. You know, I mean, just absolute landslides. And yet these same states are sending all Democratic delegations back to the House. 
And the Gingrich, Gingrich's idea when he got there in 78 was, hey, we Republicans need to define our party um, as the conservative party. Because there were liberal Republicans, there were conservative Republicans, there were conservative Democrats, there were liberal Democrats. The parties were not sorted out. He said, hey, if we claim the conservative, anti-elite, um, you know, individual opportunity, freedom, anti-communist, all these things, this is what you, we make that our message. And we make the Democrats the antithesis of, the, of that. We make the Democrats the party of liberalism, of big government, of big spending, of what he called the liberal welfare state. If we make voters in all 435 individual House districts see in their local House race the same kind of contrast they saw between Nixon and McGovern in 72, then we Republicans will win big. And, and Gingrich believed that the tool to do that that hadn't existed in the past was television, was national television. And cable television was in its infancy and literally when Newt Gingrich came to the House in 79, that was the same time that C-SPAN, the 24-hour um, coverage of House proceedings, that was the same time that C-SPAN turned its cameras on for the first time. And it was for Gingrich, you know, again, it's a, it's a world where there were like five, most Americans had an antenna on their television and got five TV stations. There was no internet and they got one newspaper. And for Gingrich, C-SPAN was a way, it was very tough to get in to get noticed as a young Republican, you know, backbencher. But on C-SPAN, he'd get noticed. And so he and a small group just basically started using C-SPAN to create what I, I call a forerunner to conservative talk radio, conservative, you know, cable, you know, a show like a Hannity or something wouldn't have existed in, in 1978. But you had Newt and you had, you know, small group of like-minded Republicans claiming an hour or two of floor time every night on C-SPAN and just getting to expound on whatever they wanted. And those were the themes they talked about. And they slowly built an army. Uh, every new election brought more new young Republican members who shared the vision, who shared the hunger for a majority, who believed that compromise was the sh was, would get them nowhere, who believed in confrontation and contrast, who believed the Democrats were abusing their majority, taking it for granted. And so by the time Bill Clinton comes in in 1993, he's the first Democratic president in 12 years. He's got these massive majorities, but the Republican minority, the Republican opposition, by 93 is very different than it had been a decade or two earlier. It's now very much a Newt Gingrich-led, Newt Gingrich-aligned opposition. And I don't think it's something Clinton and the White House were counting on. And it set the stage for, I think it's, it's you know a lot more opposition than they expected to face. A lot more setbacks than they expected to face those first two years. It took on a lot more water politically, and it ultimately created the, the, the uh, environment for what at the time was just a shocking, shocking event. And that was the 1994 midterm election. They called it the Republican Revolution. The Republicans won back the House for the first time in 40 years. So Robert Remini, I don't know if the his, you know the historian Robert Remini wrote a really good book called The House, and he talked about some of the things that you're mentioning, and he, he mentioned Tip O'Neill as one example of how the Speaker of the House used to call the President up and say, and Reagan at the time, say, hey, what time is it? And if it was after 6 o'clock, they, they talked about, you know, uh, personal things, and it was before that time, they still talked business. And the point of that exchange is to illustrate how 
members of different parties had still working relationships with each other, even between the executive branch uh, and Congress. And that was true within Congress as well. Members of Congress used to know each other. They used to know each other's families. They used to go to dinner together. They used to spend time together. Uh, that was commonplace. Uh, that seems, you know, completely alien and foreign today. Uh, but do you think that the nationalization of politics is the force that changed that? Or did the drifting apart uh, start before that? Yeah, no, I think they're I think they're absolutely, you know, entwined together, you know, because the nationalization, you know, and, and we see this more and more in every election, although the 2022 election was a little a little weird in this sense, because I've been, you know, I, 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 I do a lot of um, talks and, and um, you know, about the book and in general, and, and one of the themes I've been hitting hard the last 10 years or whatever has been a nationalization of politics. And there was a little bit less of that, I think, in 2022. We could talk about that if you want. But. Yeah, I, I think largely, you know, we, we now exist in a world where the vast majority of congressional districts, um, you know, going into an election are not competitive. You know which party they're going to elect. And it's, it's almost like a, it almost feels like the British parliamentary system where, um, you know, the, the, the parties place their most promising people in certain districts, certain constituencies because they know if they're if they're not there, they're never going to get to office, and um, yeah. So it, it, that wasn't the case before. I mean, it's it's, it's kind of wild when you, again when you look at you don't have to go that far back in time to find you know the same congressional district would vote for a Republican for president by forty points and a Democrat for Congress by forty points. Now it is you won't find anything like that. Um, now it's rare to find one where it even voted for the Republican by a few points for president and the Democrat for a few points in the house race they're just split ticket voting has has dramatically dramatically declined um people by and large identify not just with one party or one side but i think what might be even more powerful and what might be driving it even more is they identify against the other um i think it's that negative partisan polarization i think is is the real kind of secret sauce to where we are right now um, you know, the, the, the average Biden voter may not be nuts about Biden or the Democratic Party, but they can't stand Trump and the Republican Party. The average you know, Trump voter might not be nuts about Trump and the Republican Party, but they're horrified by Biden and the Democratic Party. And, and I think those are the kinds of attitudes. I mean, I, the, 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 the stat that jumps out at me is from a poll, I think about five years ago, um, and the numbers haven't changed since, I know that, where they ask people, you know, <clears throat> by party, you know, Democrats, would you be upset if your son or daughter married somebody who's a Republican? Republicans, would you be upset if your son or daughter married somebody who's a Democrat? Like two-thirds on each side said yes. And I mean, these are like numbers you used to see for interracial marriage. But that's how central partisan identification has become to people and how strong the antipathy is towards the other party once that takes hold. And I, I think that's where we are. And So what what's the the average member of Congress making an alliance with a, a member from the other party, what's the, what's the upside in that, of that in an environment, you know, just, if you're just looking at it in raw selfish political terms for these people, which is how a lot of them think, what's the upside? Steve, did you, you know, you, in the red and the blue, you talk about Gingrich television, C-SPAN, and then, I mean, are you are you thinking about doing a sequel, you know, with the rise of social media? Like how so, you know, for all the change, all the um, 
you know, the polarization that, that I can see coming from TV, right. From cable TV, from, from things like Fox news, right. Like and and you know, OAN Newsmax, to a lesser extent, MSNBC, you know, all these other places, right. They are kind of, kind of pale in comparison compared to what you can find on, you know, Facebook and, and, uh, you know, Twitter and, and things like that. I mean, you know, do you, you know, where you literally have algorithms kind of driving, you know, what people see, is, is this feedback loop, is this, is there any evidence anywhere that this feedback loop is, is sort of breakable? So, yeah, I get, when I get asked versions of this, I never have an, an optimistic uh, answer. <laughs> and I, and I, the reason I say that is because I think, I mean, this goes, this goes way back. And I, I wasn't, uh, we might have taken biology together in high school. If we did, you probably know I wasn't, I wasn't the best biology student. I know enough about it um, in human history to know that I think we are wired. We are hardwired as human beings, as a species, to think and behave tribally. And I think the evolution of our media has synced up with that. And yeah. that's when you're, what you're describing with not just cable news, but I think more specifically social media, the iPhone and all the social media apps that come with that. Um, it means that the average person who is inclined to think and be tribal and also probably not be self-aware about it uh, or self-critical about it, um, it means the average person can select, can and generally does select um, a whole host of information sources that align with whatever side they're on and mm -hmm. not, not seek out anything that doesn't. And so then you create a situation where they, you know, take out the cell phone anytime you want during the day, open up any of these social media apps, and you're immediately flooded with your side's kind of message of the day. Here are the five things everybody's fired up about on this side today. Here are the five reactions everybody on this side is having today to X. Here are the five villains of the other side we're focused on today. And here's why. And also, like, you know, here are the five worst things that are being said on the other side. You're not watching it. You're not, you know, because you don't, you don't. You don't opt into that media universe, but we've we've gone and we've found the five most galling clips from that media universe, and we're going to show them to you, and it's going to reinforce why you're here and not there, and why you. I, I see that. I just see that happening. Um, I, I think there's a very human thing there, and I don't know. I don't know how do you, you break through it, except that there's a there's a you know pat answer here where you know the other thing we are as human beings, I guess, is endlessly creative, innovative, um, and if we get sick and tired enough of something, we can innovate our way out of it, and maybe mm -hmm. there does come a time where we get sick and tired enough of this that we do find our, our way out of it. I, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm too dumb to, to see exactly what that path looks like. No, I think that's, I mean, there's something to that. I, you know, I've got so many questions about this on this topic. You know, one question, this is, you know, apropos of nothing really but like it, you know you've interviewed Gingrich right and I'm curious is there any um, you know remorse is not the right word but like you know maybe it's not even Gingrich but is there anyone from that you know 1990s period of politics who was like yeah we kind of let things get out of control or is it all everyone doubled down for eternity or is there 
you know, is anyone like, man, you know, we really set up a set up a system to fail. Well, I t- so, you know, so I did this, not just the book, we did a podcast kind of version of the book that, that came out last fall. And I, I did get to talk to Gingrich for that. Um, there are, you know, you talk to Democrats. I, I specifically talked to Steny Hoyer, you know, who was the mm-hmm. number two Democrat until the start of this year. He's still there. And he's been there, you know, I think he got there in 1980, maybe 78. Um, so he's there through most of what we're talking about. And he says, you know, I mean, his version of it, and you hear this from a lot of Democrats, basically, is that, you know, um, Gingrich got swallowed up by his own revolution. You know, his speakership lasted, you know, basically four years. Um, and that, you know, he, he'll, he'll tell you a version of modern political history where it all spirals out of control from there. Um, when you talk to Gingrich, um, two things he'll tell you he'll he'll talk about this what he sees as the successes of his speakership and he'll point to they they did end up having you know after that 94 revolution clinton tried to come back to the middle one of the ways clinton tried to come back to the middle was doing welfare reform um you did have genuinely bipartisan welfare reform in 96 they did balance the budget that that didn't i mean and we're so far from that generation later but they did have the, the budget balanced by the end of the 1990s, and the country was actually running surpluses. So he'll talk about things like that. But he'll also talk about, um, he'll take issue with the idea that a lot of the, uh, that the, the you can trace the polarization, you can trace a lot of these things we're talking about, to his style of politics. He'll, he'll tell you his style of politics was a response to Democrats um, taking their power for granted and abusing power and trampling over republicans and it's something we looked we we looked at i mean i i don't think it's a it's an argument that is invented out of thin air i mean we we and i I think a major moment that's underplayed um in modern political history but we get we get uh into in the podcast you know again we mentioned tip o'neill earlier tip o'neill was this gregarious sort of larger than life very likable you know, grandfatherly political figure, an Irishman, a storyteller. The Republicans did not like his politics, but they couldn't help but like Tip O'Neill personally. Tip O'Neill leaves, retires in 1986, and he's replaced as speaker. And this is how it went for for generation for a couple generations there. Just every 10 years, a new Democratic speaker would emerge. Well, O'Neill's successor was a guy named Jim Wright from Texas, who, you know, was pretty cold, was pretty distant, did not have the kinds of relationships with members that O'Neill had, and he also had a very different vision of what the House Speaker should be. O'Neill's vision was you kind of let the committees do their work, and you're kind of a loose leader of that. So, uh, uh, Wright's version was to centralize power in the uh, to the House Speaker, and for the House Speaker then to leverage that power in negotiations with the President, basically become a much bigger force um, in the federal government. And it, it, there's this moment where Wright wanted a bill, a tax hike, to come through the House, and a lot of Democrats were squeamish about voting for it, and all the Republicans were against it. And they put it up for a vote, and the vote finishes, and it's 206, 205. Uh, no. And it loses. And you can watch the C-SPAN tape, and so we dug it up for this podcast. And the Republican side starts cheering because it's like, hey, we actually won. This, this never happens. We just, <laughs> we, just, we just beat the speaker. And O'Neill is at the speaker's, um, uh, is at the, you know, head of the house. He's got the big gavel. Time is up. He's supposed to gavel it through and say it failed. 
Well, he doesn't do that. He has a member from Texas who voted no, a Democrat, whose campaign he helped to, you know, helped to get to Congress, who he's privately been told by, hey, if you really need me, I'm there. So Wright holds the vote open. He has the power as the Speaker technically to do that, but it's, it's just not done at that point. He holds the vote open, calls the guy back to the floor. Uh, the guy comes back, changes his vote. Now it's 206, 205, yes. And now, and now uh, Wright bangs the gavel and declares the vote over. And the Republican side is shouting. It's irate. Gingrich is getting in the microphone. This is It was... It's one of these things we talk about norms in politics. You know, Wright didn't break the yeah. rules in doing that, but he broke a norm. And it was one of those, it was a, it was, I think it was a major moment because Republicans who had eyed Gingrich very kind of suspiciously for the decade or so before that had been watching a series of events where they were sort of like, geez, Gingrich might have a point here about the Democrats taking advantage of it. I think that crystallized things. And the reaction from Republicans who were not Gingrich's allies at that point to that moment was profound. And it's no coincidence that I, I think it was literally like a week later, Gingrich announced that he was on separate matters. He was going to file an ethics charge against the House Speaker, which also was not previously done. And that ethics charge, it takes a, it takes a year and a half, but that ethics charge ends up leading to Jim Wright being forced to resign as Speaker of the House in 1989, which was a major unheard of thing. And a lot of folks point to that moment as being a you know a key a key point in the road to polarization and all of that. But and I think it was. I think the I think the Jim Wright saga absolutely was a, a major major moment in really hardening the, the feelings between the parties. But I I do think it started, um, or at least was preceded by Wright doing something that was that O'Neill wouldn't have done, and yeah. that a lot of others wouldn't have done, and that I think I think succeeded in in bringing a lot of Republicans to Newt's side who might not otherwise have been there. You know, Newt's, uh, Newt's, uh, I read an interview with him years ago where he kind of talked about, and, and maybe you spoke, uh, you know, you spoke with him about this, so how he kind of viewed politics almost as, um, you know, he, he makes the analogy of it being like warfare. And, you know, he talks about um, this kind of seminal moment in his life where he goes to like the ossuary at Verdun. Um, you know, if any of our listeners have been there, I, I did a UCOM deployment at one point and, and went to Verdun, and it, it is a powerful sort of place. It's this, uh, you know, this chapel with this basement that's just filled with the bones of, of that they collected all over the battlefield. And Gingrich talks about, um, you know, if you're not willing to, you know, kind of fight in, you know, politically, it ends up like this, right? It ends up with violence and, and, you know, it ends up with warfare. And, um, it's interesting to me that he drew that conclusion where, you know, I, many veterans, I I don't think I'm the only one, but I think many of us from our generation almost draw like a 180 degree different conclusion, right? Of, um, you know, when we, when we harden our politics, you know, it leads to violence. And, and so, um, you know, Gingrich is an interesting guy. Like, I, I get his – I don't agree with him on many issues, obviously, but, you know, he, he seems to, like – he seems to have thought some of the same thoughts that, you know, we have thought and, and drawn diametrically opposed conclusions to them. Yeah, I think a key thing with him, too, and I mean, we were, you know, broached this earlier when we were talking about good old uh, John Silver back in Massachusetts, yeah. right? you know. 
here's a guy I knew, Gingrich, who that moment you're describing, I think also um, was, was core to his interest in history, um, in military history. Um, you know, he goes and he gets a Ph.D. in history. Um, he becomes a professor at a mm-hmm. small college in Georgia. Uh, he's got this academic background, but he's from a very early age there, even with this with this uh, appointment as professor, is looking to get into is looking to get into politics. And he had a very strong reaction. I mean, he was born in 1943. He was a you know military brat. Um, he was in law school. Yeah, he did not serve. Did not serve in Vietnam. Yeah. Um, but I think he had a very strong reaction to sort of the counterculture movement of the 1960s. And just as I was saying, you know, that, that, that Bill Clinton in the early 90s, in some ways, was was paying a political price for the ways in which he was associated by his own actions in the 60s and early 70s, the ways in which he was associated with that counterculture. There was a big segment of the country that remembered and resented that and, and, and resented that in Clinton by extension. I think Gingrich in real time felt himself on the other side of Bill Clinton. On, those, on what was happening to the country, not just with Vietnam, but um, more broadly, what was happening um, to the culture. You know, the sexual revolution was playing out in the late 1960s. You had all these group um, rights-based movements. I mean, civil rights was the um, was the sort of the core achievement of the 60s uh, um, it, it, on the sort of cultural front. That was in 1964, 65 with the Voting Rights Act. I, I should note, Gingrich was supportive of the Civil Rights Act um, you know, he was a Southern Republican, but he was pro-civil rights. It then extends over the next decade or so to many other groups and, and, and many other, you know, that's what the Democratic Party kind of became associated with, this sort of mishmash of, of different um, you know, the alphabet soup groups, I think somebody called them. And Gingrich very much saw himself, um, I, I think, opposed to that. He saw those as, as, as genuinely kind of um, elite movements, um, and, and he was so he was an academic who I think thought academic concepts and academic people had too much power. Academic minded people had too much power. Elites um, mm-hmm. in, in major American institutions. And I think he saw his role as as trying to counter that in a lot of ways. Do, do you feel like oh, the Obama years, you know, I, I'm, I'm just certainly not a unique viewpoint but it, it seems like so much of trump was a was a reaction to the you know the obama years and you know the um the charge of of elitism um you know the the counterpoint which would be well he rose to the top of meritocracy but you know i think um you know that this thread of you know this populist thread um on the on the republican side you know certainly when you know we you know you and i grew up in new england right like we think of like you know, old school Republic, Calvin Coolidge Republicanism, right? And, and uh, you know, and then we've got this, we're the 90s where that seed of populism was kind of planted and, and grew to fruition in Trump? Yeah, I think so, right around then. It's it's amazing when you look at, um, and, and Gingrich actually made this point when I interviewed him. He said, he said the, the major development, he, paraphrasing here, he said the major development in my lifetime is that the two parties have swapped coalitions. And it's not entirely true, but there's a lot to it. Um, and where, where they've really swapped coalitions over the last 30 years, um, it's particularly among white voters in the divide is college, non-college. 
And the backbone of the Democratic Party used to be blue-collar, middle-class, white voters, white ethnics, they used to call them, um, without college degrees. And the Republican backbone used to be um, upscale suburbanites, generally right. white upscale suburbanites. And so I always tell people it's, it's um, my, one of my favorite sort of political maps to, to look at and, and compare to tell this story is you look at Pennsylvania. Um, because Pennsylvania was close in the 1988 election. That's Bush Sr. versus Dukakis. Pennsylvania was close in the 2016 and 2020 elections. 2016, Trump eked it out, 2020, Biden. And yet, if you look inside the state, it's a complete inversion. The the giant suburban counties outside Philadelphia were core Republican counties in 1988 when Bush Sr. won the state by a few points. And rural western Pennsylvania and southwest Pennsylvania was overwhelmingly Democratic. And Michael Dukakis was winning it by like 40 points. And that's why the state stayed close. And then you look at a Trump-Biden map or a Trump-Clinton map, and those Philadelphia suburbs are now core Democratic, double-digit landslide counties. And those rural western Pennsylvania, southwestern Pennsylvania counties are now Trump plus 40, Trump plus 50. Yeah. Um, in a span of a generation... That's where it's and it's changing a little bit when you, when there's all this talk now about like is the is the Republican Party over since 2016 is it starting to make inroads with non-white voters and I think the answer is somewhat in, 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 in with certain types of non-white voters and where you're seeing it I think is particularly Hispanic voters you're seeing that non-college college divide I think you're starting to see that with Hispanic voters and then you layer in a bit of a gender divide there too. But, I, yeah, I think there's this, like, class thing that's been playing out in the last generation or so. What's the why – the co- why is the college thing such a big deal, right? Like, I mean, is it is it as simple as, you know, we don't like you, you went to college, and, you know, you're, you're fancy, you're too big for your britches? Or is it, is it more the downstream effects of the type of jobs that people get? With a college yeah. degree, or no, I, I, I think it's that. I, I think it's, you know, there's there's uh, there's a book written. I, I, I haven't read it, but I've meant to for ten years now. Called like the Big Sort or the Great Sort, sort of about how like like-minded people um, end up living very close to each other and away from people who aren't. And, and and I think that's a big part of it. It's it's you know when you go through, you get your bachelor's degree or you get your if you go further, you get a master's degree or something. It's just going to put you on track for certain types of jobs which are going to put you in certain locations which are going to put you in certain neighborhoods which are going to put you in you know and if you don't you're likely to end up you know um maybe, maybe not in montgomery county pennsylvania but maybe sure. you know further maybe in you know uh you know further out you know scranton or something um and and i think that's i, I think that's what it is and 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 the republican um message it, it preceded obama but it accelerated under obama and it really accelerated once trump got elected um just the republicans now are are cleaning up in places that you could go back to bill clinton's days in the 1990s and find democrats still winning easily um and now you'll now you'll see republicans you'll see trump winning you know by 60 points that was exactly yeah. the case here in Kentucky. I mean, we, Bill Clinton was very popular here. That was my first vote, by the way, in 92. That was the first election I was ever actually old enough to cast a vote in, and I remember it very well. He actually came to the university in Kentucky for his uh, second, uh, when, he, when he was running the second time. But yeah, so we're exactly like that. You've got these blue islands now in our, our two major cities, and the rest is just this huge sea of red, which is a, a 180 from where it was in, in the 90s. 
just kind of amazing. That's it. Yeah, I, 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 Kentucky is a great example. You go Eastern Kentucky, coal country. Michael Dukakis won it. <laughs> go look at the Trump numbers; you'll never believe it. Steve, how do you? Uh, we're running short on time, and I want to be respectful of your time, but I gotta ask you a couple questions here, man. A couple, couple fanboy type questions. How long does it take you to prep for election night? Like, there's you. What, how did you possibly learn all these counties all over the country? Um, it, it's a it's an ongoing process. There's no, you know, it really is. It's just like between elections, trying to keep, you know, studying up. I, I mean, sometimes it's as easy as. When it gets close to an election or something, I'll make flashcards. Um, do I have any right here? I What's this map on your wall? You know, we're, we're not on video here, but Steve's got a map. Yeah. It looks like some metro area. Those are the precincts in uh, Clark County, Nevada. Uh, <laughs> and I'm not, and I'm not, that must have been from the center race last year. And I, it's too big <laughs> for me to move. Oh, we're not on video, but I, you could see at least. Like, here you go. This is California. It's California, uh, yeah. This is, you know, uh, I make these flashcards where, you know, you shade in one, you have a map of the state with the counties, shade in one county, and it's just like being back in school. You just run through them until you got them committed to memory, and at least you know where they are. Then the next step is to commit to memory, you know, the, the rough political, you know, history, demographic, political demographics of each county. Um, obviously, you know, going into an election, there are certain states you're going to really want to focus on a lot more than others. This must be from that California recall a couple of years ago. Um, well, but, yeah, it's... <laughs> you know, you know what's, what's interesting about your style, right, and, you know, you've got this kind of, uh, you know, some people probably think of it as this, this frantic, you know, on-air style. And I, I can vouch for Steve being this way, uh, I wouldn't say always, but when you get excited about something, this is this is what your, your excited personality looks like. And so... You know, the reason I was thinking about this, I'm like, man, what is so different about Steve calling an election night? And it's like, oh, you're doing play-by-play and color commentary all at once, right? It's a one-man show. And that's really, you know, I was like, I I think that's what it is. It's like you're combining the role of, like, somebody giving the play-by-play here. Hey, here's, you know, the latest results coming in from whatever, Clark County, Nevada, and then, you know, and then you, bam, you've got this ability to, you know, actually talk about Clark County, Nevada in a way that uh, combines these, you know, two traditional roles. They should pay you double is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. I'll let my bosses know. That'll, uh, uh, that's a good way of putting it. I don't know. I hadn't thought of it really that way. But, but yeah, I mean, it's um, I, I'm I've always been interested in election nights, kind of the spectacle of election nights. Uh, I found myself. You know, it was a great way early on kind of to learn the country, uh, you know, really get a sense of, you know, 1996, 2000, 2004, you know, when I was just kind of starting out following this stuff and, and getting into it professionally. I always found election nights, um, the more granular you could get to, it was a good way to kind of learn about the, you know, the, the nooks and crannies of the country. Um, and now we just have the, the, the technological capabilities that, just where we are in 2023, where we'll be, I hope, in 2024, just dwarfs where we were, you know, 10, 20 years ago. The ability to zoom in on these counties, to call up demographic data, to call up past election results, to call up congressional results, all of this stuff. So I could just show this stuff and tell these stories on the air. I, I, I loved watching Tim Russert. 
when I was a, a, a younger, always mm-hmm. remember election night. I mean, I think everybody does, right? Election night 2000, Florida. Uh, the states initially called for Gore. It's pulled back. It's called for Bush. It's pulled back. And But, you know, Russert had, he did an incredible job that night of uh, explaining all of the, the these just dramatic changes of emotion and, and, and outcome to, to viewers. And all he had was a little whiteboard, grease board, that he would just, yeah. you know, squiggle the state names on. And I think back to that, and it's, um, you know, I think that thing is in the Smithsonian, by the way, or some, some major national museum. But where, where we were in terms of our ability to tell election night stories then versus where we are now, I feel lucky because, uh, you know, to, to be able to show these county levelers, I could, if I didn't have the board like I have and the technology like I have, the audience would be lost with me spitting six county names at them. So it's, um, I'm, it's just I'm fortunate to be doing what I'm doing when I'm doing it. Um, do you have any uh, any any work coming out? Where can our audience find you? When are, what do you got coming out, Steve? Um, next big thing. Well, okay, we've got April fourth, Chicago mayor's race, and there's a uh, race for state supreme court in Wisconsin, which has gotten some national attention. I mean, again, we talk about how politicized we've become as a uh, as a culture. Right. Yeah, the race for Wisconsin State Supreme Court we're going to be covering um, on April 4th. So those are the next two big, big political things coming up. I've also been lucky enough to uh, to get to do some stuff with NBC Sports, and we've got uh, the Kentucky Derby coming up on the first Saturday okay. of May, so you can uh, tune in and watch me make a losing pick uh, on that. <laughs> and bet on someone else. Um, awesome. Well, hey, thanks for coming on, Steve. Uh, we appreciate your time and uh, uh, keep us posted what you got coming out. Glad to do it. And uh, that was just fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to An Accountable America brought to you by Veterans for Responsible Leadership. If you want to learn more about the organization, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook or online at www.vfrl.org. Mm-hmm.